Hello everyone, recording from my car like Daniel Norton and Jason Hobbs do, not an original thing. Sometimes Jason Connerly does as well, but uh, yeah, it's been some time. I mean, I've been putting out these podcasts maybe every other day and I was out of town, so I thought I would have the time to do it, but I didn't. But uh, here I am, and in the meantime, I've gotten quite a few call-ins. Um, I got call-ins from Jason Connerly, from Joe Richter who uh, talks about and answers the question of romance. Uh, Jason addresses that, and we have our ongoing discussion about Dune and Dune legacy type of game. Um, and then I got a special call from uh, uh, Raven God Games. Joe Salvatore calls in. He was able to play in one of my games this past week. So I'm also going to do some recaps as best as I can remember. I've run uh, three games this week. So I ran a, uh, a game of um, early in the week I ran Twilight 2000 the 4th edition incarnation of that game and then I ran a game Pathfinder 2 running through Abomination Vaults and then this morning this is Saturday I ran a DCC RPG a continuing DCC fantasy RPG that I'm doing using um, material from Echoes of Fomalhalt and uh, other DCC products and it's just, it's a quote-unquote vanilla fantasy, if you can call DCC vanilla fantasy. But uh, it runs very well, and we're all having a great time with it. So, um, yeah, uh, it'll probably be a longer episode. There's already seven minutes worth of call-ins, so um, seven-plus minutes worth of call-ins. So, you know, i got to listen to those and answer those and comment as I do. And uh, then do some recaps and make some comments and commentary. Now, for the recaps, I will let you know that uh, both Jason Connerly of Nerds RPG Variety Cast and BJ Boyd of the Arcane Alienist have given recaps of some of these games, uh, notably the Twilight 2000 and the Pathfinder game. Uh, so you can go to their uh, podcast and listen there from the player's perspective. I'll try to be a, a little more like bird's eye behind the screen type of view, um, even though I really don't use the screen, right? So, um, so hopefully these are more enlightening about what goes on and, and you know what the GM knows versus the players. But definitely go listen to those podcasts, and uh, and then I'm sure they'll have a recap of this morning's session as well. So. Uh, um, anyway, I will uh, talk to you next. So first up is going to be Jason Connerly. So pay attention. Hacking Pendragon to play a different genre is an interesting thought. I know I've read about people doing it with Battletech before and then using actual Battletech rules for the big battles, which I think would be pretty neat. But doing a space opera kind of thing, you know, whether it be Dune or, or something else, but doing that multi-generational, you, you know, couple century long game w would be kind of interesting and, and definitely, you know, appealing for people like political games. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be a lot to be done there. And Pendragon's a, a great base to do that off of. This comment is a follow up on the comment left in the previous episode by the arcane alienist B.J. Boyd. Uh, 
and suggesting using Pendragon to do domain play and house play, big picture play, um, using you know, in the Dune verse. But uh, I contend that using the Diffius 2D20 would work too. And looking through the book, they do give you the different eras of play, though the default and what they're going to support is going to be um, what's going on just prior to and during the Dune books. So I don't know if they're going to do a peripheral campaign of what happens on Arrakis during that time or not, but we'll see. That might be kind of cool. But we were talking this morning after our DCC game with Arlen Walker of Live from Pelham's Wasteland and suggested other games that we could use for that. And he, there's two that I think were kind of cool, um, apart from what uh, John Allen Large and Jason suggested on, on his podcast previously, which was the Powered by the Apocalypse Legacy among the Life Among the Ruins. Life Among the Ruins. So Arlen suggested... Um, fate because it has aspects and you can say you know well-trained soldiers for example is a house aspect and you can make it big or small like do that architects and uh, assassins kind of concept again and uh, that could be pretty cool and i know they've done like generational things because of the time lag and time frames involved for um, in a fate game for um it'll come to me it'll come to me for mind jammer um, which seemed pretty neat. So it definitely is possible in a fate game. And the game that I suggested is uh, Rain. The second edition is supposed to come out uh, here now. And again, that has the big picture play and then small uh, act, primary actor play as well, which I think would be kind of cool. And that game might be suitable for that. Arlen also suggested, hey, why not put it prior to the events of Dune itself? like what's going on in the years and the buildup. And then the idea would be for me, if I ran a campaign to run another house other than Atreides or Harkonnen or Carino, and maybe it could even be a nascent house or a house minor or house major, and then they get caught up in what's going on. And then you could or could not get to the events in Dune, right? So, um, but would you necessarily need the Dune RPG to do that? You could do that in any science fiction game from Stars Without Number. There was also, I think, the Fate game that he suggested was, I think, Baroque Epic, which I think is inspired by Dune and the intrigue, courtly intrigue in that type of game, or in a game of the very, very far future uh, where that kind of intrigue would exist. Um, so it was a good discussion, and uh, I don't know. We'll see what the future li what lies in the future for a game set in or inspired by Dune. Now, the caveat, of course, if you did set it in the Dune-verse, you'd have to use the Apocrypha, um, so the works not done by Frank Herbert, but by his son. Um, for example, House Atreides, House Harkonnen, House Carino, Butlerian Jihad, Paul of Dune, um, all sorts of stuff that had been done. And you could even do it much, much earlier. I think another cool, there's another, oh, Revelation Space is another game where you could do a generational sci-fi game. Um, it just, uh, that verse created by Alistair Reynolds, where there's, you know, he really tries to keep true to the, to the science as opposed to the fiction and science. So there's no warp drive, but you can achieve uh, close to light speeds. It just takes a time to ply about the, uh, the known space that the humans have colonized. 
And I like that one also because it's definitely less science fantasy, a space opera, because there are no aliens you can trade with. The only aliens that you find around are either malevolent or their um, civilization is in ruins and has come before, but long since passed, which I think is a neat game space to play in. Because um, even like Traveler to me is space opera because you got talking, you know, talking anthropomorphic aliens. So uh, your mileage may vary on that definition, but uh, yeah, I have to revisit the revelation space and maybe have to dust off some stars without number and see what I can get together with that. But maybe as, um, as Arlen suggested, that Baroque space game might be kind of neat to do because there's definitely some, some age in revelation space, you know, centuries, if not millennia, that man has been colonizing out into space. And there is some definitely some decadence that is described in some of the books. Um, I definitely recommend Revelation Space books by Alistair Reynolds. And if you don't want to get into the trilogy, uh, he does have one book. I will get it to you. Chasm City is the name of the book where it's just like an adventure on one world. And it's pretty cool and very evocative. Um, I like the way he writes and how he develops his world. So... And he has a lot of host. If you don't want to get into, like I said, the Revelation Space trilogy, he also has a lot of short story collections that take place in his in his verse. So, um, pretty neat concepts, actually, some of them. And I, it made me think generationally because there are some characters that, um, it, just because of the time dilation that can be involved, you can have people who live hundreds of years because part of the time and in between the stars is spent in like a, a cryogenic sleep. Um, and there's also like digital recreations and things like that. So um, it's pretty cool. It's a cool verse. Uh, read Chasm City if you just want to get a taste of it. Uh, look for the Revelation Space Trilogy if you want to see, um, look at uh, Reynolds' opus, right? So anyway, um, yeah, thanks for the question. And I guess that's uh, gave me some good insight and feedback, um, Jason. Good comments. I think the key to question to ask about characters flirting and and those kind of things, you're comfortable, you and Amy are comfortable doing it with each other, but are you comfortable watching other people do that or other people doing that? That's the real question. Because I know the question came up whether that would be appropriate in the cyberpunk game, and you seem to be against it there even though, you know, so, so that's kind of the question is if it's not okay for everybody to do it, then we probably should probably shouldn't be there at all. Right. Well, I can't talk today. Hey, Jason. Yeah. Just to clarify, it does. I don't mind the flirting part. It just, it seemed, and maybe I misinterpreted this, Daniel. I don't know if you listened to this but it felt like it was going into the realm of describing his characters like table dances or lap dances. And I, I don't want that. That's goes too far for me. I have trauma of from an old superhero champions game of the uh, unicorn stripper and the player describing that kind of stuff to myself and other players. And it was, quite uncomfortable so that's where you know i want to keep it you know i guess you really can't keep it clean 
but not describe it in detail. Maybe just say, well, my character does X, um, but I don't know. Maybe there's that's not a distinction for you, but um, yeah, whatever. I think, you know, maybe kind of push the limit until someone says raises their hand. Um, and I think I am okay with other people flirting with NPCs. If, if players flirting with each other at the table, I don't know, you know, but because uh, I don't think I've crossed that line. It's usually been um, NPC and player. But uh, let's listen to the expert, Joe Richter. He uh, noted in the Wheel and Woe podcast in actual play, um, he had a lot of fans because of the the cutting edge romances and things like that that they had. So uh, let's hear what he has to say. Hey, Carl, I'm riding the exercise bike right now, which is sort of fitting for this conversation on romance that we're going to be having because I'll be breathing a little hard. But yeah, I do run romance at my tables for both the boys and the girls. I will, if they start flirting with an NPC, I will absolutely flirt back. And we will take things as far as they want to take it. Um, and as far as doing that in an actual play, yeah, I think that was one of the reasons why the people that liked Wheeler Woe, that's why they really liked Wheeler Woe, <laughs> because we were, we were just a little bit different, you know? But yeah, uh, in the Wheeler Woe campaign, one of those relationships actually uh, turned into... The uh, NPC actually got pregnant. This was with one of my male players and his male character and a female NPC. And he didn't plan on that. I didn't really plan on that. I left it up to the gods, a.k.a. the dice. Um, and it just happened. And it ended up turning in to this plot point, because he was a gnome. He had gotten an orc pregnant. So what was that baby going to be like? Plus, he was a magical gnome, and she was a badass orc warrior. Like, So started getting called Super Baby, and then she got captured because the bad guy Empire maybe wanted to check out this Super Baby. And yeah, it was a really fun, interesting, stressful, introspective character arc uh, that you got to be really careful about. You don't want to spring that on just anybody. But then, yeah, so the group that I play with, my home group, up until just recently, was made up of a married couple, a boy and a girl, and another boy that I play with. And... You know, it's always interesting <laughs> when either one of the married couples starts flirting with an NPC and then I start flirting back right in front of the spouse. But, you know, we're all good friends. We have a very open, communicative relationship. Everyone knows it's just part of the game. There's been all sorts of sexual shenanigans in my games. But like I say over and over again, that's absolutely not for everybody. You have to have a very special bond, an open bond. Um, 
and just make sure you're constantly communicating to make sure that you're not crossing any lines, that everybody's comfortable, nobody's feeling left out or jealous or anything like that. So yeah, it's really fun. It adds a whole new interesting dynamic to the game, but it's very, it's sensitive, right? Pun sort of intended. <laughs> you gotta be gentle with it. You can't force it. Yeah, and as with romance in the real life, it's all about consent. Anyway, man, that's it for me. You got a lot of calls talking about me today. That's awesome. Peace out. Hey, Joe, thank you for that. Uh, I don't know if I can add anything to like your uh, instructions and caveats, not caveats, like how to um, put romance into your game because I think like you say, you know, you need a good rapport and bond with your players. There needs to be some maturity. I mean, you don't want it to dwindle into like, you know, um, was it like uh, letters to penthouse and hustler type things, right? Um, you want to keep it mature and adult, um, not juvenile and frat boy-ish. So um, I think that's great advice and direction for putting that into your game. So thank you for that, Joe. We could definitely have a whole episode on this kind of stuff. And what I thought was interesting is I love your idea of the sort of, you know, legacy play. And I was kind of thinking in the back of my mind of that in the Call of Cthulhu game that I'm running with, with Amy, like what if her and the NPC that she you know, has been developing a relationship with what if her character and this Mickey Harrigan guy, you know, get married and have kids. And then do I, do they have kids or their grandkids? Like I already thought I was reading an adventure during my flight and it was like, oh man, this would be kind of cool for Keiko Kane's and Mickey's daughter. But then I'm like, oh wait, that would be in the 50 so granddaughter, <laughs> grandson um, in, the, in a more modern age, uh, maybe even great grandchildren could you do a legacy cthulhu game that'd be kind of neat i think like as far as like reproducing and rules for that i know pendragon had a table that you could do during the um the winter season the winter there's like a phase winter phase i think is what it's called actually and you could you know you would check to see how your land did you check to see um, if you were married, if you had children, you check to see the health of your children. You check to see how your stables were doing with your horses and livestock and stuff like that. Um, that was a, actually a pretty neat little subsystem for Pendragon, and you could definitely do that. I, and I don't think, I think in the the only thing that I can recall is the 2006 book of, uh, it's called the Book of Erotic Fantasy, had rules for um, getting disease, sexually transmitted diseases. And for reproducing, um, if your character did, you know, sex acts and things like that. And I think the Book of Wild Darkness had rules for BDSM. Um, so, so there you go. I don't know. They're in the rules somewhere. And you could track them down if you want. I think those books are out of print. And, of course, um, the authors were shamed for writing these types of things. But, um, you know players sometimes want that in your game like you said take you know maybe that's makes it more realistic because that's kind of what happens it's not the sort of sterile 
we all meet to, you know, we don't just go to the tavern, decide we're going to go to a dungeon, kill a bunch of stuff and bond in that sort of way and then go home. Well, maybe some people do, but there is bonds can be developed. I mean, that's what you read in the fiction, right? Bonds develop during these traumatic events. And uh, you're, you can become more than friends in these types of games. And I think that does help with it making making it more realistic. Because I think that's what would happen. We don't just, you know, <coughs> go out into the dungeon and go back to, into our little box. And maybe some people play it that way because they'd rather not get into the realities of it. But uh, some people do. And I think that's cool. It makes it a more mature and fun game. And you kind of got to do that. So next up. Uh, we got a call from uh, Joe Salvatore. And after Joe's talk, then I will jump into the recaps because Joe kind of, it's a good segue. It's a good segue. Hey, Carl, it's Joe. Just wanted to call in and say uh, thanks for letting me join the Twilight 2000 game. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I, th I think it's a, it's a really interesting setting. Um, I like the, uh, the throwback, the sort of the 80s throwback, I guess. Um, it's kind of hard jumping in into like the, the middle of the game when it's there's a lot of established story already. But um, you know, I'll just kind of I'll kind of get by. Um, but yeah, we had a great time, man. Like no firefight needed. Uh, we did some good role playing, and and uh, I think we learned some things that uh, we'll follow up on next session. Anyway, thanks again, man. Later. Hey, Joe. Salvador of Raven God Games. Thank you for that message. It's actually encouraging. I'm glad you stressed or said no firefight needed. I actually was concerned after this game that there was, you know, no, there was definitely movement and progress, but there was no fighting and there could have been fighting. But I think I believe that steps the players took to set up what they did prevented conflict from escalating and arising so i thought it was really good planning and forethought by the players to get to where you got with minimal conflict and um we'll see how things go from there so here's kind of what happened in brief is that we pick up at the farmhouse where the players have counter ambushed a group of marauders they uh, killed several after extracting information. They have one more who it turns out is a KGB informant for a marauder group called the Raiders of Warsaw, who are based sort of north and northeast of Krakow. But according to the intel and the information they extracted from these prisoners, they know that there is a force there hiding um, in Krakow itself, and they get some more information. Um, they don't get, they get a name of who the informant talks to to get to the KGB, but neither Jonesy nor uh, Amy's character, Kasha, know that name. Um, so let me just, so... Joe joined us, Joe Salvatore joined us in this game of Raven God Games. There's also a character named Sam, who is a U.S. Uh, expat living in Poland, having established himself in Poland. Um, and that is played by Jason Connerly. My wife, Amy, plays Kasia, who is also a Polish partisan of indeterminate age 
and indeterminate allegiance, kind of, sort of. So Amy's character did explain to the group, because the last time we left, they were unsure whether she too was enemy KGB. That's the assumption, since we're playing, you know, there's a German agent in the group that the players may or may not know is actually a German agent. Um, and a, a lot of Americans. And what I did also, and, and they've, they've taken, there's like, in this group, there's like 16 or 17 NPCs, because it's like a convoy consisting of three vehicles and a, like a, a, a motorcycle scout vehicle as well, um, if they need it. And, um, and Joe joined us. He's taking over Tops, who is a um, master sergeant, part of a, one of the SEAL teams assigned to the region to disrupt traffic up and down the rivers um, and uh, knows some intel, but not as much as maybe Jonesy, who is a German spook played by another friend of mine who plays in many of my games. He does not have a podcast, so, or maybe he might soon though. We'll see. And then, of course, like Amy, I described, and then um, Arlen Walker, live from Pelham's Wasteland plays, but he was unable to attend and he plays Ronson, the heavy machine gunner. Um, so, you know, he kind of stays with the APC on the 50 cal um, and guards, you know, the important stuff that the convoy has accumulated, like the operation reset papers, like Diaz, the driver and mechanic, um, and any other important assets that the convoy might have. So I didn't spring any of this on the players, but I I did, and I did inform them that I developed the sort of, I think it was up to 11 NPCs that had not been named and were faceless. And I rolled, I rolled sort of who they were, what they did in the military, et cetera. And I ended up rolling two officers, one of which has been helping them and not really revealing his officer nature. Um, and uh, maybe some people know he's an officer, but he hasn't caused any problems or um, pushed his authority, right? Um, the other officer I decided has been one of the ones who's kind of out of it because he's recovering from typhoid. Um, so he hasn't done anything either. And then there's some, also a couple, uh, rangers and sergeant types that are in the group, but, uh, at, you know, by default tops is sort of the leader in charge. And then the civilians are kind of running the show in a way, um, which is kind of, which is interesting. We'll see how far this goes. But there is a possibility that when that the lieutenant who was sick comes to, he might try to assert authority. But uh, we'll see. I think Joe had mentioned that Tops might have to um, teach him some religion. I don't know. I don't know what the exact phrase that he used was, but it seemed kind of cool that they're anticipating it and ready for it. Although I didn't want to spring it on them as, just as soon as I had made that roster. And one of the players uh, who plays a sergeant, Grunts, who is a, a ranger also, has really done a great job of getting the roster together and making us little uh, tokens for the game. So um, so it's pretty cool that we'll have that information. Anyway, the, uh, Jonesy and Kasha did uh, good cop, bad cop on the last prisoner and got some more information. They decided, and they, decided to, they were still going to go to Krakow. But they did not take, they, one, they did not take the whole convoy. Two, they did not take the children that they had rescued. They did not even take this informant. They left him there under guard. Um, 
So, and they only took the pickup truck. So, and it was the, in the pickup truck went uh, Jonesy, Tops, and Kasha with Sam driving and Grunts with Sam driving, and um, Tops left his like signature seal sniper rifle and grabbed one of the AK-74s or, or one of the, and same thing with Jonesy, he grabbed an AKM. Um, Grunts, even though I asked, the player said, no, I'm going to keep my M16, so. Um, but they're all dressed in sort of civilian-type clothing. They're not, they're trying not to call attention to themselves, so they drive to, they drive to Krakow, and we did a really long and I think important information and role-playing session when they got to the first uh, picket. I'd asked them how they're going to approach Krakow, I gave them some choices on which road they could come in from the main road. So it was pretty cool. They went to like, they looked, they saw and were impressed by the fortifications. They went to a kind of like a battalion HQ for the Northern part, you know, guarding the Northern part. And they learned, so in Krakow, there are, there's the, the Rada, which is the governing civilian governing body, but also the police force. And they've heard now and again that this leader uh, is crazy. There's the Ormo, which is the Polish, I think, Eighth Army um, remnants that have decided to stay in Krakow to guard it, and they hold, a, they have a lot of power. And this is generally who are like are at the uh, the checkpoints and things like that that they approach. So uh, Jason's character did and Kasha did really well. Um, they were all the other players were compliant when they were asked to leave the pickup truck. No one caused any trouble. Uh, no one really cared or noticed that one of the players had a American weapon. Um, all the characters can pass for Polish, especially if they don't talk. So Kasia and and Sam kind of led the discussion and talk, and Sam negotiated and made friends with the uh, uh, Piotr. I can't remember his last name, but Sergeant Piotr, um, who was there at that northern um, checkpoint. Um, so they saw, you know, this. The Ormo is pretty heavily, you know, they have a lot of weapons. They saw a couple, they saw a howitzer battery, they saw a mortar battery, and but unmanned, right? So um, so maybe they're stretched thin. There could be a possibility. So anyway, so they got their temporary papers. They only had to give them some, you know, moose backstrap in exchange, which, I mean, no one has, like, fresh meat. That's so scarce. So it's a high commodity, and I don't know if they realize that, but they definitely use that to great effect. Um, so they, they drive into town. They know that there's an inner town, like with the walled city that used to be a park, um, that Akasha and Sam remember pre-war Krakow, but now it's a, a wall, you know, a barricade, a makeshift barricade, um, with barbed wire and then a, a boardwalk around the top. And they kind of got a lay of it. There's checkpoints everywhere. There's people, there's guards walking up and down the boardwalk. Um, it's, you know, it, it would be a hard target to assault even with the, uh, you know, platoon-sized force that the group has. Um, so I think, I don't know if they're, I've considered that. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, they only have one vehicle. And, you know, for sure, with mortars and howitzers, you know that they probably have some armored vehicles somewhere in the city. Um, so I, so they, you know, they as they're going through the city, they get past the checkpoint. A bunch of you know, street urchins and kids come around them. Um, but they notice that they're probably, you know, they're probably trying to, there's some older kids who are watching them and directing them what to do. 
So uh, I think Tops noticed that and he kind of said, everyone be careful, hold close to your stuff. They might try to steal our stuff. And I thought, and I thought it was, um, this was good that they did not bring the KGB informant because then that KGB informant could possibly have caused trouble in this location. So that's one way the players I feel avoided the fight. Uh, I don't know how he would have caused trouble. Um, I'm not going to say how he could have caused trouble, but definitely he probably would have in an attempt to escape or something like that. Right. So, but they didn't take him. I think that was good forethought. They also left the operation reset papers um, guarded by Ronson and Diaz and other trusted NPCs. I think Rollins is the trusted one. Um, they probably have the ones from the first um, ambush that they rescued uh, Barrett and Fuentes and I think uh, another uh, EMT type. Um, so like the first ambush, I kind of, I also rolled randomly all these NPCs with their, their MOS was. So that seemed like the first ambush was probably like a medical, more related medical convoy. And we just had probably a Humvee type of ambulance truck or something and, and just got waylaid their truck taken and them left for dead. So, um, so that was pretty cool. And the other ones were prisoners of various types, mostly some motor pool, but there were some like, uh, mortarmen. Um, some rangers, and then of course the two officers, the quartermaster, and um, I didn't, I don't know if, can't remember if it was an infantry officer or, or maybe something else. So we'll see. Anyway, in Krakow, that's the only thing that really happened until they got to the inner city, and then they heard like music and a sort of a pseudo festival going on. There's an open air market, and they were told to go to the town hall, where they would. Right. So the characters had like temporary passes that they got from the checkpoint. And they went to the town hall to get permanent passes. And again, they used some fresh meat from the moose uh, to do that. It was Jonesy and Kasha went to negotiate the free weekly week-long pass for their them and their companions. Um, it, it didn't seem super strict, though they noticed black police presence and, and uh, military Ormo presence in the festival. Um, then they had a place to go uh, called the N.A. One word and then D Z O K I E. That's the name of the bar. I, I don't remember what that translates to, honestly, off the top of my head. But uh, so the other guys were left with with a pickup truck, and then Jonesy and Kasha met up with them, and they headed um, into the bar, and that's kind of where we left it. We'll pick up uh, what happens there. Um, they were given some names, and they're looking to track down the Sergeant Cutter or Cutler, who has caused them problems and was responsible for the Operation Reset um, ambush. So, um, so we'll see how that goes. It should be pretty cool. I think it was a more a lot of info, info dump this session, and I, I hope I was trying to convey how organized Krakow was, though it wasn't like the magical city that had been reported on the radio or through rumor. Um, it was still a dingy, dirty, broken down city, but there's some presence there that is not to be trifled with. And I hope I convey that. We'll see how the characters react. Um, this is definitely a, a game you cannot go murder hobo if you want to have your character survive for any reasonable length of time. Um, Firefights are, are, can be quick and deadly. Um, so um, we'll see how things go. This is now kind of like kind of an intrigue type of thing. They have these papers. They want to get them to the right people. They're, you know, they're sure that other 
agencies will want to get their hands on them um, and uh, damn the consequences and consequences and you know not even bother to take names of the people who are in their way so we'll see how things go Krakow, it's awesome that we're in Krakow I can now on my roll 20 change the banner I can change the name the 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 secondary name of the game of the of the game um, it was a breakout before and now we're you know in the free city of Krakow so cool stuff and it's a very it's a really enjoyable game I'm glad we have a lot of like more regular players now um, I think it's taken off and we'll see how things go in Krakow <laughs> The second game I ran this week was our ongoing and recently started Pathfinder 2 game, Abomination Vault. So in that game, um, our, the participants are, uh, among others, Jason Connerly of Nerds RPG Variety Cast and BJ Boyd of the Arcane Alienist. And there's two other players. Um, and they have, well, we have, we had one other player before and a, a fourth join us, which was pretty awesome. So the party consists of Jason's character is a goblin fighter with an emphasis on dexterity. So he's like an archer type, uh, very deadly with the short bow. We, and BJ is playing um, Dr. Felizar, who is a wizard um, who's interested in flesh warping. So we'll see how that turns out. Apparently the, the second part of the Abomination Vaults describes flesh warpers and all that kind of stuff. So as they get up in level, I'll give that information to BJ unless he already has it and try to figure out how that's going to progress. Um, the other two players do not have podcasts, but one is playing a dwarf, an anvil dwarf um, named, I can't remember, but uh, Jason remembered and I did not. Um, but he is a paladin and also a weapons crafter. So, And then the third player or the fourth player that joined us is playing, it can play a, a vivacious gnome and is going to play a gnome oracle. So uh, that's a healing class that is spontaneous um, divine caster, So, which is kind of cool. So they hadn't met the gnome yet. Uh, when we last left the players, they had retreated from uh, the ruins of Gauntlight and returned back to the nearby town of Otari. Uh, there they kind of sold their stuff and air quotes um, to various parties. Um, Dr. Felizar met uh, Rin. I don't remember the creature, uh, the person's last name or the NPC's last name, but it is, uh, she is a um, tiefling elf. So, um, and they have really cool pictures of her and people like the pictures. So, um, I mean, the, the published material has the pictures of her, and the players like the pictures. So you'll see, you, if you listen to Jason's recap, uh, you'll see, understand, and, and uh, maybe understand why. So, or what, what, what was that consequence, or does that matter? Anyway, so, you know, they sold their stuff, did, you know, met back at the bar. Um, Jason's character is still a bit injured. Um, the paladin had healed themselves. And that's where they met the gnome oracle who introduced himself. Uh, I think it's Felbar was his name and healed Jason's character. So they bought him a drink and they all hung out together. Um, the doctor had said that Rin offered to give them a star reading. 
um, at, at later that night if they wanted to. So the players went back and got the star reading. We rolled pretty well. And as a consequence, the players get a bonus to their saving throw for the day. And Rin was very happy and impressed and let the players stay at her place um, overnight. Um, and then the characters returned to Gauntlet and noticed a few ch that the that the mephlets had changed a few things, including like a dead deadfall trap, or at least the dead body of a mephlet would fall into a pool, and who knows what would happen? Uh, maybe it would explode. I don't know. They didn't test it because Goblin in the hood saw. Well, they the group saw the guy, and as soon as they saw them, before he could react, a Goblin in the hood shot this guy in the face with an arrow, and he fell back. And the trap did not drop. Um, then they kind of went into the range itself, retraced their footsteps until they got to this place where um, they knew that this mephlet had been hiding out. Um, they noticed this sort of statue with a mace and goblin in the hood repaired it. And they took the mace, which turned out to be magical, which is kind of cool. And then behind the door, the dwarf, um, I want to say its name's Cromac but I could be wrong, heard voices. So they kicked open the doors, got off a surprise round, and then proceeded to destroy the a leader of the Mephits, of the Mephlets, uh, several other Mephlets, and the pet, uh, so Goofid, one of those sun spiders, um, giant sun spider things. So um, yeah, it was a pretty long, it wasn't, the fight wasn't long, um, per se. There's a lot of moving parts, but it was a pretty brutal and gory fight, at least for the bad guys. Uh, Jason's character, his the luck continued, and you can hear it again on his podcast. He describes it a lot better and in more detail than I do. Um, got some crits, but also got a crit fail. So, um, but like took down the boss in like two shots. Uh, the spider was not alive soon after, and with the dwarf holding the line, you know, the other mephlets, uh, couldn't hurt that, hurt that dwarf. Um, were frustratingly trying to stabby stabby the dwarf crunked few and goblin, um, took down a few, even the gnome got into it and, and killed one. So with, and with Dr. Uh, Dr. F, um, used his sleep spell, uh, took at least one out with that. So, you know, and then lightning arc, was pretty effective too. So they did pretty well. Um, they found out some interesting things. I thought that was kind of cool. And I think that is, that's definitely, that's where we paused. And then we kind of look and look around and examine things. Um, I dropped the parcel of gear from the room into their character log. So we can look at that and discuss uh, what to do about that after. But uh, it, was, it was a good session. Just getting the hang of fantasy grounds and re- it's been a while since I've run Pathfinder 2, so, you know, it's not always quick to figure out what the rules are. And even for one of my long-term players who's really good at that, that's been some time. So, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say, again, it's slow, but it's just uh, part of the learning, I would say. And it's always fun, right? It's, it's, it's great to see success um, in combat for the players and uh, add new players into the group. So we'll continue in a couple of weeks with Abomination Vault.
This morning, we continued our DCC fantasy game. Uh, the players are uh, the usual suspects, it seems. Jason Connerly, who plays Idris Khan, a wizard. Then we have BJ Boyd, who plays uh, Bernfried, a priest, and a cleric, and uh, Arlen Walker, from live from Pelham's Wasteland, who plays Ardath of, of the Thrice Cursed Sword, who's a warrior. We have another player who plays a dwarf um, who was not able to make it, um, but that's the composition of the group. Um, so with the three, we continued, and using the fourth as an NPC, sort of, uh, we continue the assault on this castle of Sula. And um, yeah, so they when they they kind of took a breather as they got into the first room of the castle and they heard chanting and peeked in and saw all these plantmen dancing and led by a green hag who was chanting um so and these creatures were so absorbed in their antics that they did not really hear the assault that was going on um nor when creatures flatter were turned into here and just started started dancing or got caught up in the in the frantic antic of the chanting and dancing that they didn't notice the players. Um, so Idris Khan steps up and fires off a magic missile or a series of magic missiles, and they manifest as flaming arrows. And I think he summoned six of them because his patron deity was very happy with him according to the die roll. And they were all aimed at the green hag and the green hag was riddled with these force flaming arrows and fell to the ground. He also cast it, he, re, he was able to cast it again and destroyed the closest plant man, plant man in front of him. The plant men were kind of stunned as the chant ended and the assault began with Ardath racing in there and cutting down in a massive double sweep and arc of his two-handed sword, like six of them. It was pretty gory and ridiculous. Birdfried runs in there and backs up, and the fight is on with these creatures assaulting them and them hacking them down. And it's going relatively well um, until this creature that was in a nearby room kind of heard what was going on, stuck its head in, and stood in front of Burnfried uh, with this big side of, you know, side of B for this, you know, club with meat on it um, and pointed at him and said something, but Burnfried didn't understand. It turned out to be um, this creature, if you can imagine, this tall, also green, lanky creature with sharp claws and pointy teeth um, with long, scraggly hair. Um, yeah, it's a, the description of a troll. So our death engage you know he because of the destruction of the hag and ardath kind of sweep of the sword the other creatures had broken morale wise and tried to flee uh, ardath pursued some and cut them down as they're trying to get through a locked door um, others ran in a different direction um and that's like it and then that's when that creature had stuck its head out hearing the commotion so then after ardath cut those creatures down in the corner he ran to confront the troll and it was a 
pretty tough fight. It was going back and forth. Um, with Burnfried's help, Ardath was able to stay alive. Uh, there was an incident where Ardath accidentally, with the backswing of a sword, uh, nearly cut down Otto. Um, the creatures seeing the troll come to the fight and doing pretty well, and the characters not dispatching it uh, very quickly, kind of regrouped and joined the assault as well. And then it wasn't until a well-placed color spray by, or a, a double color spray shot by Idris Khan, who had run around the battle, um, realizing that the troll was healing itself or regenerating each round to the fire in the in this fest hall to get a flaming arrow ready just in case. But uh, when he got there, he decided, well, now it's time for a color spray, and it worked very well. He blinded and knocked the troll unconscious, knocked several of these plant men unconscious, and uh, the fight was over, just like that. And they finished him off. Ardath cut off the troll's head, kicked one, kicked the body into one fire, and went into the kitchen and dropped the head into boiling water to destroy it and melt it to nothing. So, or maybe he tossed it into the fire. So uh, they found some interesting things in the cleanup of this. Um, they're pretty tapped out after this fight in a way. So they found a key ring. There are two cauldrons. One cauldron was kind of weird and seemed magical, uh, had dancing figures on it, um, was of a lighter material than the cauldron with the meat stew in it. And there was also this cauldron with the dancing figures had green stuff coming out of it. So they dumped the contents, which was a bunch of plant material and bones, um, and then took it with them. And they went into the next room, which was like a was like a tower room. They used the keys to go in there. And there was a grate in the middle of this tower room. And they saw that another, like a larger troll was under there and kept captive. They tried to talk to it, but it really just wanted to try to jump up and grab them and eat them. Though it couldn't reach because the pit's like 30 feet deep or something crazy like that. So, um, yeah. So anyway... Uh, they, they also found another thing they found like this, uh, they saw this in the feast hall, they saw a painting, uh, of a woman who they'd thrown like uh, knives at its face. And one of the knives seemed in better condition than the others. So it just kind of pocketed that one or put it in his belt and behind he found a, like a small niche, but it had been emptied and there was some writing there. Ha ha, you're too late. And now the three have become two or something like that. So, um, they, oh, another interesting thing happened in the tower room as Ardath was exploring it. The swords jumped, these swords that were on the wall animated, but it was not a, not a fight at all, really. I think Ardath destroyed the swords in two rounds, um, so no big deal. Uh, they're curious about the troll and, like I said, couldn't communicate with it. Um, and then they hold up in there just to rest for a while. And after destroying something like 50 of these plant men over the course of the encounters, the assault on the drawbridge and then uh, the anteroom or the foyer of the castle and now this vest hall and kitchen. Uh, so, And they also, I thought the cool thing is the cauldron, they took it with them and put it in this room, I'd overturned it on the grate, and you know the, the captive troll down below could lick the drippings, I guess, as they fell down into the, the pit. Um, and they were able to recover. At some point, 
maybe after they recovered and before dawn as they had healed up and stuff, they heard a lot of commotion. So they know outside of the door are more of these plant men and maybe a troll or two waiting behind. And then someone spoke to them and said, return the cauldron and I'll let you go, even though you killed one of my sisters. So it seemed like presumably one of the hags is out there waiting. So, you know, they healed up. They tried to identify the items, the three magic items that they found. They actually found a, this comb of some sort on uh, the first uh, green hag that they destroyed. And, uh, but they couldn't figure out what these items were. Uh, the knife, the comb, and the cauldron, the cauldron being the most magical. So uh, that's where we stopped. We're, they're trying to decide how they're going to approach this, um, what they're going to do, if they're going to bust out of one door or the other. Um, are they going to try to free that captive troll down below or what? So it's pretty cool. It was a really fun session. Uh, the combat went really smooth and, and things flowed really well, um, pretty much. So I had a good time. And that's DCC Fantasy. It's a really enjoyable game. I kind of like what we're putting together here. And uh, I love that the characters have like a goal now. We're going to take this castle, sure, but we want to find a way to get home. Um, Idris keeps giving Burnfried a hard time. Why did you take us through here? Can you fix the gate? So, um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Oh, Burnfried did not try to... Uh, make googly eyes at the green hag. There was not enough time because Idris killed it in like one shot. That's it for this show. I again want to thank th those folks who called in, Jason Connerly, Joe Richter, and Joe Salvatore. Um, really enjoyable games this week. I've had a good time. And uh, thank you all for listening. So music is by T.J. Drennan. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, here's the full-length version of The Geomologist Presents. Oh.